Hey, by the way, Doctor, is mystery your sole pleasure? Young man, what could be more pleasant than mystery? Well, music, for instance. Music, why, of course. Music, for instance. Music, why, of course. On top of the world. Uh, yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Creative Contact with your host, Kia Orion. You could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you wherever you are at this moment in time, whether you're driving to work, mom, I know that's you, you driving, you know, you're on your way into that good old grind. Grinding hours Monday morning um, or Tuesday or whenever you listen to this joint. I appreciate you tuning in with the boy. I've got an especially special episode this week. Um, it's actually, it was something that I recorded earlier uh, in the month, at the very first of the month, but I've been holding on to it because I knew that the uh, the project release was coming up. And if you clicked on the episode, you already know, so I'm not, I don't know why I'm trying to like build this up like it's something. Um, but it's the episode of my pops with my with my dad. At least part one. Um, the man is uh, he's had quite an adventure for his life, and so I figured, you know, he's his, both my parents. Mom, you know you're coming on this joint at some point. I'm gonna get you if you if you know my mom. Help me convince her to come on here because she's being difficult. But my pops, uh, you know, was was ready and willing. And so last time I was up there, I was like, Yo, pop, you mind if we chop it up for a second and you know, talk about your life and, and you know, kind of your, your adventure so far, and he was down. So he um, obliged, and it was really interesting, you know, you're, as you grow up, I don't want to make too much of a thing of it because we get into it, but um, as you grow up, it's it's interesting seeing your parents more as real people and rather than just fixtures in your own life, and that's something that's become really important to me as I've grown up. Um, now at this stage of my life as a grown man and having mom and dad as um, people that are just more homies, you know, than necessarily parents. And so it's really cool being able to, you know, kick it with my dad like this on an evening at home and just kind of bullshit and hear stories and, you know, trade adventures and, and talk to him on, you know, on some grown man tips. So um, it was it was really dope. And, and actually I'm using this too to congratulate him because the old guy just... Uh, finished um his project which we talk about in here a little bit um but it's so he retired he was a he will he'll, he'll tell it to you in here at least in this part one but long story short he just finished um the first draft of his autobiography which he's been working on since 2012 and i think it's like some odd thousand pages something like that like the man is a writer you got to give it to him um, he knows how to write, so he just finished it this, um, I mean, last week, I think. He put the finishing, uh, the finishing chapter together, and then I'm, I'm kind of uh, urging him to go back and edit it or send it off or at least do something with it so that um, people can read it because the man has had a crazy, crazy story. Um, he kind of had a, um, I don't want to say traditional, but he kind of did his thing, you know, going through life, finding his way, and then called it audible when he was maybe somewhere in his like uh, mid-20s, something like that, we get into it, and it took this crazy adventure into storytelling and being a children's author and 
living in a lean-to out in the Ozark Mountains for a long time and um, kind of becoming an, an entrepreneur. So that's all of his, all of that uh, we'll get into in partly in this episode and then I'm going to sit down with him again next time I go home to hopefully get a part two. You know, it's an ongoing adventure so it'll, it'll that drip content. You feel me? I'm going to give you a little piece at a time. Um, but we talk about kind of his early childhood um, growing up and then, uh, you know, some of his life lessons along the way. So it was just really dope. Shout out to Pops one time for being down to let his, let his boy grill him. And it was cool too in this context because I know a lot of his stories, but this gave me an excuse to kind of really do a deep dive into some of the stuff that I was more interested in. It gave me an excuse to get to know him better. So I hope that you appreciate this as much as I did. Um, and the man, he's out here hustling too. Like, don't sleep. I'll link all of his shit up in the, in the bio. You feel me? EarthTalesAndBirdSong.com. If you know someone who's trying to get, uh, you know, hire a storyteller, the man, he's selling books. He's playing songs. He's telling stories. You know, he's still, he's the OG in that, in that storytelling game. So he's still out here. Pops is um, still getting paid more than I am to go around and tell stories that school so shout out to the old guy one time for for, for doing a big and, and, and paving away um so this is it with pops um again check out his website all of that jazz my big bro shot a cool video for him and um i hope you enjoy it uh tell hit me on the dm or in soundcloud wherever you listen to this and tell me what you think all right y'all thanks again for tuning in i'll, I'll catch you next week peace Andre, thank you for doing this for me um, I'm here with the, uh, illustrious Rick Rogers, extraordinaire, my pops, the one and only, um, the CEO, founder, and executive director of Timberdoodle Productions. Um, so for those that, you know, have been living under a rock for the past 50 years that might not know about you, um, tell the people just a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do, and then we'll jump into things from there. All right. So the quick synopsis would be um, I <clears throat> went to the State University of New York at Fredonia uh, to get a, a degree in elementary education, and that uh, was completed in 1970. Then I was drafted uh, because of the Vietnam War. So I got my degree in July, basically a 70, was drafted October 15th of 1970. Uh, spent not quite two years uh, in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, but I got very lucky. Uh, did not get sent to Vietnam. I got sent to Germany because that's when they Vietnamized the war. And so then uh, when I got out of the Army in 1972, I got my first teaching job at High Middle School in Williamsville, New York, which is very one of the affluent neighborhoods of uh, communities of the Buffalo area. And so hold that thought because I want to get into that stuff. Okay. Let's just, just tell people just a little bit who you are, what you do now. Now. And then we'll, we'll jump in because there's some good shit in there. Okay. So um, now um, I retired as a classroom teacher in 2012 uh, with 22 years as an educator. I had 17 years as a children's author and storyteller. Uh, and because of a couple boys that came along, uh, that's what, uh, who, who I went back into the classroom uh, as a result of having two boys. Uh, being an independent children's author and storyteller uh, required a lot of travel. 
And so it wasn't practical having a family and two sons to do that. So then I was a classroom teacher from uh, 1995 to 2012 retired in uh, the summer of 2012 and then because I had been a writer for 18 years before I went back into the classroom uh, I just went back and started writing again and um, so I went back to writing short stories but my major project which has occupied me almost every morning since 2012 as often as I could anyway I went started to work on a major project uh, originally I would have classified it as a memoir but actually after a while I realized it's an autobiography because much of the story that I've been writing are taken from my journals uh, that BC before children uh, I wrote religiously almost every day uh, for almost 18 years in a journal so I wound up with 35 three ring binders That's of my journal and so I've decided to write this story uh, not it is an autobiography, but it's really not so much about me, but it's a story that I wanted to create for young. I'm thinking really along, you know, for young teachers. My, you know, um, you know, your mother, and you know, Julie, my wife, said, well, it's really not just for young teachers, just for young people. The story really is about, you know, if you're in a job, if you're seeking a profession or whatever you're doing. If you feel like at some point you want to step out of the box and do something a little different, by all means, step out of the box because this is what happened when I stepped out of the box and it's a, this adventure that I went on yeah. um, that um, took me many places. I, I know. I want to get into that stuff too. And if you're in the box right now, stay in the box. It's not great out here. <laughs> the pay's not great out the box. Um, <laughs> no, you have to. No, it's, uh, you got you got to hustle. Have to sacrifice. I, I believe you know? it. I think I think that's. The, I think there's a reason. You know, shout out Big Bro. We both have been trying to try something a little non-traditional, and you know, inspired by you, Pop. But um, so let's rewind way back um, before. Uh, before you started, you know, really knowing who you were, take me back to where where were you born? So I was born in 1948 in Miami. Right. Um, my my dad, your grandfather, um, you know, was from Seneca Falls, New York. But in 1939, at the big uh, World War II is starting to crank up. Um, he, as a mechanic, gets a job uh, working for a contractor in Cuba where he meets your mom and uh, your, your grandmother, my mom. And uh, then they, when the war ends in 45, actually in 42, they actually wound up moving to Panama. Mm -hmm. And that's where my older sister, Tia, was born. Mm -hmm. So in 45, when the war ends, uh, my dad being a mechanic, your grandfather, uh, decides it's a lot easier to be a mechanic in Florida than it is in upstate New York. Absolutely. So they moved to Miami. Then I grew up in Miami till the end of my to seventh grade, mm. and that's basically when they invent the interstate system. And so the interstate system is going to put a swath right through Dade County, Florida, or Miami, our little suburban home that your grandfather worked so hard as a mechanic to create. Uh, is they tell him they, he's got to go. They got to move. So he decides he's going to take the family and he's going to move us to central Florida 
uh, in Polk County, which at that time was very rural, uh, dry, no alcohol. Wow. And uh, yeah, really? it was very, very rural. It was almost like the third world. The two major industries of Polk County at that time were citrus and phosphate. And so it was almost like the third world in the sense that the kids whose parents were involved with the citrus industry and phosphate, did really were, well. they, were, they did very well. And then there was, wasn't much of a middle class, but there was a lot of blue collar and lower class. And so well, you're, you know, my, your grandfather being a mechanic, yeah. we weren't up the upper echelon. <laughs> right. And it was segregated. You know, when I went to high school, there were no black kids in our high school. It was wow. the segregated South. Everything was segregated. Damn. Uh, so let's let's touch on that a little bit. So in high school, even though you're in Miami, your mom is... Not, oh, oh not sorry. in high school. Um, we leave Miami at the end of seventh grade. Okay, so in seventh grade, that's the segregated school? Uh, no. Your high school is segregated. Yeah. Well, that's segregated too. Uh, Miami's segregated. So when you're in high school and it's segregated, even having a Cuban mother... Are there any black and brown folks in your high school? Oh, absolutely not. Wow. It's segregated. There are no black kids in our high school. They had their own high school. Obviously, didn't have the, you know, yeah. they were, and there, and there were the communities where they, where they lived. There, there, were, there was no mingling of the That's crazy. In 1965. I mean, Damn. it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I was just very fortunate that my father being from the north and my you know your grandmother being from cuba that there weren't the racial overtones within our and within our family yeah. whereas uh, many of my friends uh they unfortunately they grew up in i think where there were there were more racist sentiments within their homes because they were more comfortable with the n-word yeah, which yeah. we never used or right. never heard in our family well and i mean even your mom your mom being cuban you know what i mean like you're that's an interesting world because you're you're part of you know um, you 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 get actually have family you know that's a minority group so you know you probably don't have as much of that xenophobia they seem like others you're like oh no we're gonna hang with maria and george whatever you know what i mean you're right uncles would come over so you actually have exposure to other people what's that like going to an all-white high school are you even is it even on your radar that it's like this is kind of wacky that it everybody's white or that's just how life was it just was so it just was yeah. wow yeah, and so was. At, at that point in high school um i know the story that all the listeners don't but talk a little bit about sort of uh you know what what you're getting into as far as you and critter and and the boys was that high school that you were with them uh, no. no uh so this really good close buddy of mine uh whose whose name was Dickie Lambert uh we were we were childhood buddies so we pretty much we leave we leave Dade County at the end when I when I finish my 7th grade in uh, junior high and so I see him maybe that next summer. He, I think he came up. After that, we kind of lose touch because mm. now we're, you know, we're four hours away. Yeah. And um, so I don't really see this guy again. Right. But um, the junior high, um, so it, when I'm a junior, and I think it's, uh, of course, I had to go to work. You know, I used to mow lawns, you know, for $1.25 <laughs> for, you know, a, a yard. Uh, then when I'm in high school... Uh, to make money, to make a car payment, um, 
I got a job as a back boy. And uh, it was a, a quick check, it was called, mm -hmm. which eventually it becomes Winn-Dixie stores, which are still in Florida and the South. But there also, the, Dick, the quick check that I worked was in downtown Winter Haven, which was about five or six miles from Eagle Lake, a little mm. kind of town that we lived in. But the population of the, the, the customers who came to that store were primarily black. Huh. They were coming from the, I can't remember the name of the communities now, where, the, you know, they were segregated communities, yeah. but they, you know, the, those folks would come. So I was used to, you know, taking out the groceries for the, you know, the black moms and the grandmoms yeah. and the families that would come to do their grocery shopping and, and would tip me with whatever small change, because that's how we made our money yeah. was from tips. That's crazy. Yeah. You were t I always wonder about that, because you don't really tip. Bag boys, and, yeah, and yeah. so uh, were there also a lot of um, was there a big in you know on your mom's sort of side there was there a big Cuban population or a big Latino Latina population? Oh no, not no. in those days. Oh, okay, so there was because yeah. in my mind I imagine there's a lot of black and brown folks, but it yeah. there aren't. There are now, but there weren't back then. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I would, as I recall, and I could be wrong, but as I recall, uh, most of the the fruit. Of course, this is big citrus i mean it's even like where your grand you know the your house that you're used to going to at your grandmother's yeah now of course when you go there there are houses but when we were living there it was orange grove oh it was wow. just orange grove for as far as you know <laughs> orange groves everywhere and most of the fruit pickers as i recall were mostly um, black and poor white migrant mm. workers it wasn't i think until you start getting into the 80s maybe uh, or late of course i left in the 60s but it's i don't think the migrant uh the you know like the mexican yeah. so to speak the latin american migrant laborers they're not they're not starting to come in to fill to, to fill that take up that space until until later okay. as i recall because it was hard hard work. It, you're out there in the sun hard. it's those floor big ladders yeah. i mean there's no aluminum in those days you've got those 12 foot wooden ladders that you're carrying around with those great big canvas sacks to you know to pick you know and there's thorns on oranges and terrible trees and so they weren't making a, i mean they were working their butts off yeah. not making a lot of money damn so there are so many stories I want to get to that I know. So we'll fast forward a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll save the normal Kia questions about high school, blah, blah, blah. So um, fast forward. Let's fast forward a little bit to senior year and you getting your heart broken and um, the, the big transition that happens for you senior year. So um, during my junior year. Oh, junior year. Excuse me. Junior year. So during my junior year, uh, I fall in love with this um, – young lady linda spa shout and out linda she uh she decides i'm not her cup of tea so it breaks my heart at the same time um the relationship of my mom and dad is is coming unglued they're not getting along uh they're not relating well and partially as you know it's because my father uh made a big mistake of when they moved when we moved out of Miami in 1962 
because my dad was of that generation when they had to sell the house he didn't ask my mother's opinion he didn't ask her what she wanted to do he had decided we're going to move Polk County and so now he he moves his wife this Cuban woman out of the where she's used to being with her brothers and her sister you know my uncles and aunt that were always coming over because yeah. we had these big fem you know latino yeah. gatherings now he my you know the gringo takes the cuban and moves her you know to central florida where she has no connection to anybody and it begin it's the beginning of the end yeah. so by 1965 uh it's pretty obvious that you know that their marriage is not working uh, my dad finally comes to me one, I don't even remember when he, I know he comes to me and just tells me he's going to divorce, um, my mom, you know? And so like, oh, well, I guess so. I mean, I've been, cause I was there, my two older sisters had already been out of the house. So I'm the one who's there listening to the yelling right. and the arguing and all you this stuff. You could kind of see it coming. You could see it coming. So at the same, so he, when he tells me that he also broaches the idea that, um, how would I feel about moving to upstate New York with his, with his niece and her husband, who were both school teachers? And I had known them because I made a bunch of trips up this way with my dad. And uh, so I knew them, but not all that well. I just knew them as Ann and Ken. And so he said, you know, basically he says to me, Look, you know, who knows what your future is, but you're a bag boy in a grocery store and I and I, you know when I look back I know what my future would have been they were already grooming me I mean in in those days there weren't the community colleges were really just kind of in those days kids like me didn't go to college huh. it's the smart wealthy kids yeah. went to college kids like me you just got out of high school and you got a job where do you think in a separate universe, where do you think that would have taken you? Like, oh, I would have gone either right into the produce department <laughs> or right into the meat department. <laughs> you would really that's and that's just where moved, I was. Moved away up to I would have moved. I would have moved my way up, and you know, got married, bought a house. Well, of course, the Vietnam War is going. Yeah. So I'm. I mean, I probably would have gotten drafted anyway. But without the war. Uh, that's probably where my future was headed. Spending your life in middle management hell. Yeah. So when he, <laughs> you know, when my dad comes up and tells me how would I feel about moving to upstate New York to move in with Ann and Ken uh, to maybe get an education that might, you know, be good for me because Linda Spa had broken my heart. It was like, well, what do I got I here? I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. Yeah. Sure. So in the summer of 1965, my dad and my sister, my older sister Tia, she's three years older, we get in my dad's 1957 pink Cadillac convertible. Pops was pimping. He had, because, you know, your grandfather was a mechanic and he loved old Cadillacs. And so they drive me up to upstate New York and they, I move in with this couple that are both teachers. They're in their early 30s. They don't have children. And I finish my senior year in high school with them. And they... Um, of course, I, you know, I, uh, you've heard the story where I, you know, because I love to eat and we were just sitting at the kitchen table just, and they were, they were always big about sit down meals, yeah. sit down breakfast and sit down dinner. You were into that too. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I, Cause I just real, I learned over time how important it is yeah. to sit down every evening as a family and have a full dinner. I always remember and that. we're sitting there one evening and I just remember them saying, looking at me and saying, you know. Uh, so where you want to go to college? You know, I'm just chewing on a pork chop, you know, like <laughs> looking around. Yeah. College. Can't be talking to me. Yeah. You know, and they're kind of like, well, and I was like, what? 
you talking to me? And I was like, I don't, I'm not, you know, I never thought about going there. And they said, well, of course, and that's why you're here. You know? uh. And so I said, well, I guess I, I'll apply to the schools that you know, so many kids in New York State apply to, like SUNY Oswego, yeah. SUNY Fredonia, all the SUNY schools. And of course, everyone I applied to, I got rejected. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, as I recall, I could be wrong. I think I even got rejected from Onondaga Community College. <laughs> really? I mean, I was not an academic star. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know the story about the physics, Grandpa Cork. He was bound and determined that I was going to take physics. And I was like, you know, this is not such a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, oh, no, you know, being a high school math teacher, I thought he just felt with lots of tutoring and help. But I failed every test, every quiz that they, you know, and it's not like I didn't try. They, you know, they turned my room they, into a study for me. It was the first time I had my own bedroom. I had a desk, you know, and I would try to do, you know, I was just horrible. And when he could, they could finally see it wasn't because it was of lack of, it's because the elevator didn't go all the way to the top. <laughs> Yo, you know, that Pop, this, I think, you know, I think I got this on the same <laughs> elevator when, it, when I got <laughs> in science, Munchie. So because they yeah. were teachers... And they had already gone to the principal of the high school, so they didn't have to pay tuition for me because I wasn't their family. I mean, there's no, you know, I mean, I, they couldn't, uh, they, they got a waiver for me to go to the high school in oh, Liverpool no. so they, you know, without having to pay. They went back to the principal and said, can we just drop this guy out of physics so it doesn't go on his record? And they did. They That's just, out. Yeah, they just dropped me out. And so even though it didn't go on my record <laughs> that I, you know, was, Big loser. Bruised your ego a little bit. Of every, so then I, you know, I get into Onondaga Community College, but just by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. And you know, in the first semester, I think I was lucky. I mean, I, but I was never. I was just, you know, by moving in with two teachers, I'm slowly learning to become an academic. Right. Mm. I'm starting to. I mean, I don't remember reading a novel. <laughs> Until the blizzard of 66, my senior year, living with two teachers, I think that was the first time I actually read a novel. Like, is that a book with chapters in it's it? It's a chapter book. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, and I knew what they were. I read two of them. Pop, that's... Yeah. What were they? Mila 18 by Leon Uris and um, The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier. Were you like... What, do you remember reading and being like, whoa, this is crazy. It's a whole new world to actually read books? Or was it just... Well, not? I guess, you know, um, I realized how much... How it made the time go by. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, they weren't horribly intellectually but they were good stories Mila 18 in particular is the you know you know that had to do with the whole um have to do with israel and the formation mm. of israel but um then i'm you know but i'm starting to learn how to read you know i'm starting to learn how to sit down at a desk and concentrate yeah, and focus and start doing home you know and so by the when the community college is hard and you know i got two D's and three C's or something like that. No, excuse me. I think I got, I took a Spanish class. So my mom being Cuban, I mean, I think that's what kind of kept my, you know, my grade average yeah. was the, the Spanish classes. But it took me a couple of, I mean, I did get through Onondaga Community College, transferred to Fredonia. And by then, but I wasn't an undergraduate student. I mean, I just did what I could to get by. Yeah. You know, I didn't, you know. It was never, so at that point, you weren't thinking, I want to go, uh, and like you mentioned, it's probably a different world where you're not like, I'm trying to go have that college experience. You're just trying to kind of figure it out. Was your major education? I was going to be a teacher. Are you going to be a teacher? Yeah, because you know, living with two Grimly school teachers, I thought, ooh, this is something. And I guess I always had an affinity 
being comfortable around because you know the neighbor the Roswoods lived next door they had six kids you know when I would babysit and I kind of liked I like being around kids you know and I you know I they I wasn't you know I was comfortable around kids and so I thought gosh you know teaching is probably something I, I could do cool you know and I saw what how teachers the two teachers I was living with I saw how they lived you know and in New York State you know teachers you know never they teachers have been well compensated as professionals compared more to other states you know but for example when I started teaching however my first teaching job um, in Williamsville which is very progressive and you know community I think my starting salary was only maybe it was only about seven thousand you know wow yeah so I mean it's not a lot of money but in those days comparatively in New York State anyway teachers could do okay and so I thought, boy, this is something that I, you know, I felt could do. Uh, that I could do and wanted to do. That's what's up. So, Bob, real quick, I just want you to hold this a little close. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so, uh, let's, and maybe we can do a part two some next. I want to get into the, the summers with construction. <laughs> um, but just for the sake of time, um, let's go to... You are in college when you get drafted? Or? Uh, no, I finish. You finish <clears throat> college. Yeah. Are you teaching when you get drafted? No. Um, uh, so I get, I finish, um, I was a Spanish major until the end of my junior year. And then I realized I didn't, uh, of course, Ferdonia was such a small school. There were only like a few Spanish professors. I would have had to, my senior year, I would have had to take three classes from this one Spanish woman. And she used to drive me crazy. Really? I, I can't take three <laughs> classes from this woman. She's, you know, How I'm going to shoot she myself. Just intense? No, she was just, she would, her, Dr. Ayala. <laughs> she Dr. was, Ayala one and time. She, you know, she would just, she were, her glasses were always slipping down to the end of her nose. She was constantly pushing her. And it's like this, just lady, I'm going to shoot you. And I thought, I can't take three classes from this lady. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I would be better off instead of being a high school Spanish teacher. I think maybe I'm going to be an elementary teacher or oh. middle school teacher. Oh. I had enough classes, so I had a second, you know, my um, Spanish was a, a minor, minor, and then L. Ed became my major. So when I got my degree in the summer of 1970, uh, I was an L. Ed major uh, with, my, with a minor in Spanish. Mm. And then at some time that summer, I got a letter, of course, from President Nixon saying, Greetings. <laughs> You will go, you know, to the Army Recruitment Center on such and such a day for a physical, and you will report, you know, for October 15th to be inducted into the United States Army. Well, let's talk about that. What were you feeling? Because it's so far moved from anything I think I've experienced. What are you feeling when you get that personal handwritten letter from President Nixon um, that you're being drafted what like what before you were this and for folks that don't know you this very politically conscious activist you know young rick what what goes through your mind when you get that letter What's not that a whole lot rick is a dummy i'm i'm your typical unfortunately i guess i should say young man who's just getting by plodding through life paying little attention to the world around me. Mm. 
so, but it, when I'm in school at Fredonia, so Fredonia is not a hotbed of radicalism. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Fredonia is a primary, the, the three, there are three majors at, Pro, at, at Fredonia that are, the, you know, the most kids are like L-Ed majors, music and drama. So That's I, you dope. know, we got some art school yeah. stuff going. On. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't think we had any protest. I mean, there's no anti-war stuff as yeah. far as I know in right. those days. And it's uh, not even on your radar. It's, it's not on. There. I mean, we know it's you. there because it's on television, and, and it's it's there, but it's not anything that I'm involved with. Plus, during the summers, I'm working for a construction company. It's a heavy construction company, and it's it's a big outfit. And they're only, I don't know how many crews, there might have been like nine crews of, of men uh, that, are, that, are in, that make up the, you know, the, the crews of laborers with the foremen. And it's heavy construction. So we're, uh, we're putting in big water and sewer lines that are running from cities to, to treatment plants. Mm. And we're digging tunnels and... These, this is that era where many of the men that uh, I'm around in the summers are ex-Marines from World right. War II in Korea. So I'm around a lot of veterans. A lot of stories, too. I bet a lot of stories. And like so often with veterans, all the bad stuff floats into the back of the mind. Right. It's only the good times that float to the front. So I'm getting all the good stuff. Now, when I go back to school in the fall, you know, there is... Uh, there is, um, you know, there are, you know, there are, there are vet a lot of veterans coming back, but I'm really not being exposed to many of them. So I'm kind of torn. On the one hand, I, I know from what's on television, what's happening, that the war is wrong. I know that we don't... You can tell already from that. We don't belong there. But because I'm around all these veterans, it's like you're not a man right. unless you prove yourself and you face this, you know, you prove yourself in battle, you yeah. know, that you, you fight for your country, you fight for democracy, you stop coming, you know, all this yeah. crap. I know? think there is some beauty there if, it was, if we lived in Sparta. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like the Middle Ages. I think there is something cool about that, you know, <laughs> you know, of like, you know, testing your young men or there being some sort of a, um, you know, that that sort of trial by fire or, you know, Native American cultures. But you, go, you go hunt the lion, you become a man. Those rituals, I do think, are important. I think it's just hard when it gets twisted and then the young men are used you know, as, as, as pawns, as pawns, for, as pawns. For, for schemes and stuff. Exactly. So, so I don't blame you. So, so you have that image, you get the letter, you don't think much of it, you say, okay. Well, I, I do think, so I guess I should say when I get the letter, I, on one hand, uh, I, I'm kind of not thrilled, but I'm kind of like, okay, this is it. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go now. That was my, my chance yeah. to be, you know, to be a soldier but then this is kind of crazy because look at what's going on. And also, um, you know, I'm, I'm having second thoughts because I, I may have shared with you the story that uh, that same summer, because I had switched from L-Ed 
from the secondary Spanish to LED. I had that last summer, I had to take um, a biology class, a science class, and I took a biology class. And there were two people in the class that I became friends with, one guy named Mick, and then there was a young a woman. And uh, we decided we, were, we would study together. And Mick, so like, says so often in those days, you know, I mean, he's he's a, he's a veteran, you know, and so I'm what 19, I guess, or 20 or whatever, and he's maybe the same age, maybe 21, and uh, I I know he's a Vietnam veteran already, and I haven't really said, uh, you know, haven't talked to him about much. He had a little apartment in the small town of Dunkirk outside of Fredonia, so this young lady and I we go over to uh, to Mick's apartment to study, and um, we you know we study for this the the final. And she leaves, you know, she, she has her own cars and she leaves. And so before I leave, you know, you know, Mick says, you know, you, you want to, you want a beer? Mm. I said, sure. You know, and of course he said, you want to, want to smoke a joint? Mm. And like I, in those days, I, you know, I was kind of new for me. I mean, uh. and I was kind of, you know, just drank beer. Had you days. smoked before? Once, I think. Wow. Maybe once. So I was like, well, sure. Why not? So... When you know between a little bit of the alcohol and the the ganja, I start you know I guess build up my courage enough to ask him. So, and I I don't know if <coughs> excuse me, I think I've already gotten the letter, so I know what's you know you're coming. Going. I know it's coming. So I start asking him about it, and he can kind of tell I think that I'm naive, and so finally. You know, it's like he says, I recall, he says something like, you know, I, I usually don't bring this up much. I keep it to myself. But he said, you know, you, you, really, you really need to know what's happening. And he said, first of all, I would tell you right now, do not go in the military. If I were, he said, if I were you, <laughs> go to Canada. It's not that hard to get across the border because oh, you're wow. a fool. He tells you dip. He says, and, he, and then he starts telling, he was a medic. So now, you know, he's had a little bit of ganja. He's had a beer too. And so then he starts telling me about what it's what it was like for him being a medic, combat medic in Vietnam. Talk about. So I start getting the stories. I think it made me think of it last week when we had to take Charlie to the vets and her stomach's cut open and her intestines are right there. So he starts telling me, you know, this is what's, what it's like, you know, being a medic, running around one guy to another, the arms, the legs, the guts, the blood. And so he says, he said, first of all, of course, I'm, oh, no, I can't go to Canada, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he said, well, in that case, he said, oh, the other thing, I had, um, I had started, uh, I had applied to be a pilot in the Air Force. Already? And had been accepted. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I had gone through the application process to be a pilot, because I always thought, of, I had really good eyesight, I had 20-10 vision in each <laughs> eye or something like that, and uh, so I was, because I thought, oh, I'll be a pilot. Yeah. So I had told him that, and the fact that the whole, the draft thing, and he said, do, he said, he said, you can if you want to, but if you go in the Air Force, you know they're gonna, they've got you for four years. 
and then they can do anything they want. He said, remember when you sign that paper, the fine print only says they, they only have to give you the training. Once you get the training, they can do anything they want with you. So he said, if I were you, if you're not going to go to Canada, he said, go with the draft. It's two years. If you can live through it, oh. you're only two years instead of four. Wait, so I didn't realize that. Um, and so if you, you, if you apply separately, kind of independently, then... You enlist. If you enlist, it's four years. If you get drafted, it's two. It's two, right. Oh, so he's like either... Marines, I think, in the old days, I don't know if it still is. Marines used to be three. No, Marines was uh, enlist two years. Mm. Enlistment. Army was three, Air Force and Navy were four. Now, that was back in the 70s. In the now, days. whether or not, I don't know what it is now. It's uh, crazy sometimes to think about certain conversations like that and how it has an effect on you. It you was know? very powerful. So, uh, you know, when this is all over and I go back home that summer and I go back to Liverpool, uh, you know, I start thinking it over. And, you know, and again, you know, this is the, this is the era where... All, you're not. You don't see it now because they don't allow the journal, the photo journalists to move around with the the combat soldiers. Yeah. So you're not seeing the body bags and all the killing and yeah. the dying. Not you know like in the '60s. Um, you know this is late '60s. This stuff is you know Walter Cronkite and all that stuff. It's on the TV every night. So I'm thinking about what this guy's told me, and I thought, boy, the heck with that. So I call the recruiter up and say, forget it. I'm not interested. I'm just going to go with the draft. Mm. And so I get inducted in the, on October 15th in 1970. Wow. And so it, that happened to just be the summer in between, or not summer, but the fall in between your senior year of college after you graduate mm -hmm. and going into real life? Mm -hmm. Like, did you have plans? Yeah. What is your plan before you got the letter um, to... I probably would have applied for a teaching position you, somewhere, okay, so, but I never got the chance. Gotcha. So you didn't have to have a you didn't have to go to grad school for teaching back then. You didn't yes. have to have a master's. You yeah. did. New York State, and it's still the same as far as right. I know. New York State. Once you start your first teaching job, you have five years to get a master's. Oh, okay. Okay. So you can get it with yeah. the undergrad, and then you get kind of five years. To, yeah. Okay. So life takes a strange turn. How? When it's the day that you that you ship out, how are you feeling? Are you dreading it? Are you thinking? No, this I is... was excited. I mean, it's you a know, new this adventure. Is, you know, this is you. my uh, this is my test of you know my manhood. This is where I'm gonna. And the unfortunate thing too is that not only was I working these around these construction guys, getting all this you know militaristic warrior stuff, your grandmother. And your grandfather loved movies. And when I was a kid, I John we Wayne went movies, right? to the drive-in. It was the big, the era of the drive-in. <laughs> Almost every weekend, we would go to the drive-in. And I saw every, you know, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, Richard Woodmark, World War II cowboy movie that was ever made. Yeah. So I've got all these nonsensical romantic notions in my head yeah and you know I, I i know who i am now and i know i'm a romantic at heart and so i've got all this false imagery 
in my head. So I'm going to go into the army. I'm going to go to Vietnam. I'm going to be that guy running for, you know, that, that all these, same thing with all the same old, same old yeah. 19, 18 year old boys. It's always the same. They get the stuff in their head. And of course, you're doing it for God. You're doing it for country. All this bullshit that gets into these to, into young men's heads that make them so susceptible to becoming pawns for military machines. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting for me to think about you in that context as a young man without, because I only know this version, this so incredibly hyper-politically aware compared to, you know, young Rick. Um, and so I realized, too, since... Uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of, maybe we'll do two parts or this will be parts. So we'll just take it, um, it, you know, a piece at a time. So don't feel like you have to, you have to skip anything. So you get, you get in, you get drafted. Um, for those that don't know, and for someone who hasn't been through it, what's that, what's basic training like? Like I've seen full metal jacket, I've seen saving private Ryan. What's it really like when you're in there? You have to get up at the crack of dawn. Are they yelling at you? Are they, yeah, it's basic training. Yeah. I mean, it's basic training, but, because I worked construction during the summers, it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> like, I've already physically, done this. Physically. And actually, that's, it made it harder because the, when I, the construction, when those crews that I work with, when we were digging those tunnels, it was hard physical labor underground. And the foremen were leaders. The, the foremen mm. were leaders. These were men that, when we went into those tunnels, it was the foreman who was taking the jackhammer and going in to start knocking down the rock. And then the guys like me with the wheelbarrow and the shovel go running in behind them to shovel it out. Good, so good leadership. Good I mean, leadership. Good, good Not leadership you go and then I'll be back here <laughs> watching. <laughs> right, right. It's I go and then you follow. That's interesting. And so now, these are this my three summers I worked with with these men and so I'm used I don't know it but I'm now I'm I've become accustomed to what it's like to be with a core group of men with a, a leader doing hard physical somewhat dangerous work and now I get into the United States Army and now remember too in 1970 the US military is coming unglued because if you look at, if you go back and the Ken Burns yeah. Vietnam, even though I wasn't going to watch it at first, I decided to. When I looked at some of the stuff he was putting together, it kind of put things in perspective for me. By 1970, the war is so unpopular and it's so wrong that the, the soldiers are starting to rebel against the leadership. And a lot of so now I'm, I'm dra so at basic training, the, I'm starting to be around these men that are officers that aren't worth their weight in salt, you know, and it's, it's, I'm starting to see the discrepancy. How can you tell? Well, because it was like, they were, they had the, they've got the brass, yeah. they got the shine, but no backbone. And they're, the they're treating you or just, yeah, yeah. And the decisions being made that are, I guess not so much in basic training, but once I get out of basic training and to get into the real army you can kind and of start, tell. you can start and tell these guys are wimps, you know, they're not, or they're, you know, they're making st stupid choices and decisions and, uh, but basic training itself, 
I mean, I was, I, the only thing I, I was pretty, you know, strong physically, I wasn't used to running. I mean, that was kind of hard, the getting into the running piece, but it didn't take long. What about in watching these movies, speaking of being brainwashed, how intense was the, um, the like, mental warfare that they played on with you guys? Was it much of that sort of break you down mentally and playing <laughs> fucking with you and stuff like that? Yeah, was, I mean, yeah? that's base, you know, basically. Uh, you know, an interesting, one of the, hard, one of the um, things that I, I found interesting was um, growing up in the South, and, but fortunately, you know, living in, in the North, but having a, a dad who was a Northerner and, and, and your grandmother, in basic training, when those black drill sergeants mm-hmm. are really, you know, putting it to us, and me, you know, having to do this stuff with these men, you know, making me do these things, I would catch myself with some, some racist tendencies yeah. wanting to rise up. But I would catch myself saying, it has nothing to do with this. Do not allow yourself to look at this man and his color and to become part of it. He's just another man. He's just doing his job. And so I felt fortunate that I could intellectualize it. That's huge. Which not everybody can do. But I felt that I that was one of the good things, perhaps, of going to school mm. and getting an education and understanding racism. That I was able to sub, you know, when you got when you do something and somebody's, you know, standing on your back or making you do this or do that. Um, so I felt fortunate that I was able to work through a lot of that. Yeah. But um, a lot, and a lot of times, folks will you think that, and then that's as far as it goes, you know, and then. You just attribute to their race or gender, or whatever, compared to everybody, ha- you know, is judgmental, thinks things, and then being able to just say, wait a minute, catch yourself being aware of, ha- you know, your own prejudices and stuff like right. that. So, um, Molly, so uh, as far as that, then, how do you end up, um, do talk a little bit about the battery of tests or things that they run on you so that you end up um, before they ship you off? abroad so i was very um very lucky one by being drafted after getting a degree uh so that when at the time there's there are a number of little pieces of of luck that just come my way number one in 1970 um when i'm drafted is when the uh i get uh i get sent to fort dix in New Jersey. Now, Fort Dix in New Jersey was a, a training center. It's a basic training center, but also it was a training center for many of the bureaucratic types of jobs in the U.S. Army. And so when we were run through the... Oh, and Fort Dix had just reopened. It had been closed for quite a while because of a spinal meningitis scare. So... <laughs> But when I, the day that I, then when I'm drafted, along with a bunch of guys from the Northeast, instead of being sent to Fort Polk, Louisiana, where if you go to Fort Polk, Louisiana, you're only going one place, and that's Vietnam, because they're going to give you an M16, and you're on your way. So now there's this whole bunch of us. They reopen Fort Dix right when I'm inducted 
And so we get sent to Fort Dix. So now when they start giving us a battery of tests, it's more to try to find out maybe people with clerical skills, who's mm -hmm. got... <clears throat> And of course, a bunch of us, we're all college grads, so we've got, you know, bachelor's degree so we can type. So when we take these uh, batteries of tests, our computer cards are indicating that we have these administrative skills. Yeah. So then, somehow or another, at the same time in 1970, of course, I don't know this at the time, is when they Vietnamized the war. So by 1970, things are so bad that... Richard Nixon, of course, has to get reelected in 72. He comes into power in 68 under the false premise that he's going to end the war. Mm. Right? That's his that's his niche. I'm going to end the war. Vote for me. Well, by 1970, after Nixon's first 2 years, more young guys are killed in Nixon's first 2 years than all the years before. Yeah. So there's a bloodbath. Well, they know he and Henry Kissinger, <laughs> that he's not going to get reelected unless they make a change. So in 1970, they're going to Vietnamize the war, which basically means we're going to pull the GIs out, ship them, except instead of sending all these boys for cannon fodder to Vietnam, we're going to shift them to NATO forces in Europe, and we're going to intensify the technological destruction, the mm. massive B-52 bombs. So now, after they've drafted thousands of us, they ship us. But So the other thing that happens is the Army decides we need to improve our image. So we need, we need writers. We need uh, journalists. Mm. So we're going to take a bunch of draftees from Fort Dix, and we're going to send them to the Defense Information School to become war correspondents. Lucky you. Lucky me. Very lucky, because up to that time, if you wanted to go to this very specialized school, you had to enlist for three years. What? Now... Me and about 25 other guys are being sent there as draftees. The first time in the history of the, of the Defense Information School, draftees are being sent there. What? It was just you and 25 other guys? Yeah. There, I, maybe there was more. I can't remember. But it was small. A small group of guys. Wow. Just because you happened to kill it on your aptitude test on, with the on typing the, and On everything? the typing stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so when I get there in Fort Benjamin Harrison, it was called Fort, Fort Benjamin No Place, uh, in Indianapolis, when I get there, um, you know, there are these officers, and, you know, when you have to check in and you show your paperwork, there's these two young lieutenants. They're looking at my paperwork, and they're saying, you were drafted and sent here? <laughs> so, hey, I'm just here, <laughs> yeah, I just you know? They tell me. And they're like, oh, God, this is unusual. There were a whole group of us that were all draftees that get sent to this very specialized uh, school for the Army. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was like college classes. We were at foreign affairs. We were taking classes on, you know, NATO and, you know, European classes and, you know, on Caribbean. That's we learned crazy. how to use a 35 millimeter, how to run a black room, you know, how to, a dark room, how to use a, a Pentax. Pentax was the big camera in those Wow. Days. So that's like... It's the correspondence school. The yeah. correspondence school. To wow. A, to be a correspondent. So to trace it, so you get shipped from from Syracuse, you're living in, in upstate New York, to Fort Dix. Fort Dix, New Jersey. In New Jersey, and then from Jersey to Indianapolis. Indianapolis. And so for each of these stints, how long are you in Jersey for? How many months? How many weeks? I don't remember how long. For what, it. Did it seem like a long time <laughs> dragged on? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it seems like for I, October 15th. 
probably and it was cold i know that so i can't remember when i wound up going out to fort benjamin but, harrison so but. you're there for a couple months and then how long are you in def- of course more correspondent school in indianapolis i think that was maybe 10 weeks two and oh, a half wow yeah. so a couple months yeah so it's in the spring is when um we're gonna so you know it's it's called ait right so you when you go into the military at least the army there's basic training and then ait which is advanced individual training mm. so whatever it is you've been listed for whatever it is they decide they're going to train you for uh, that's called AIT. Like getting two months of training, right? It was wonderful. Is it like you wake up at five and you eat breakfast and then you go to class? It was laid back. Fort really? Benjamin Harrison. I was on, well, on the plane going out there. A guy, of course, I'm in my you know my dress greens, and some guy says, well, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to Fort Benjamin." And he goes, "Oh, Fort." Uncle Ben's rest home. That's what he called <laughs> really? it. Uncle Ben's rest home. It was so unmilitary. I mean, it was really nice in terms of being in the military. That's so right? interesting. Yeah, we had we were just like college classes, and you know, then that was. I wrote a paper. I had to write a paper for one of the classes, and I wrote it on Che Guevara and how the CIA hunted him down and, and killed him. You know, that's I mean, so I mean, it was my like a paper on Che Guevara. It was wonder. It was that's great. crazy. I couldn't believe for it. Reason, I pop, I've never known that, that you did that, yeah. that you had that school. So you go there for a couple months, you're writing papers on Che Guevara, you're enjoying yourself, and... This is when I joined the Army, when I first began to really smoking pot. Oh, really? Yeah. They're smoking, you guys are smoking pot? Oh, yeah. It? I mean, the mil- there's more pot smoking <clears throat> going on. Yeah, because it's so That's laid back. So funny. My, Uncle, Bru- Ben's rest <laughs> home. Uncle Ben's rest. My room. My roommate was this young guy. I think his name was Bruce Coburn, not the musician. And he lived in Columbus, Ohio, which wasn't that far away. He'd go home on weekends for leave because it was such a lax place. And he'd come back with a couple ounces, and then we 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 would you know we'd just smoke pot at night. And he'd keep it. We'd take pop on the bunk beds. They had this little metal tops. He'd pop that off and stick you know his ounces down in there. I mean, it was great. And then, writing papers? That sounds like a yeah, dope experience. Uh, and it was a multi-service school. So it wasn't just, it, and it was and also women. I mean, there were there were waves and wax and waifs and Marines and Navy guys. Because this wow. was like a multi-service school. I mean, it was like going to college, right? That's I mean, it was fascinating. Really very, very fortunate. Where did you... At that point, were you thinking, hey, this whole military thing ain't so bad? You know what I mean? Are you? No, by then. You, you I'm, had a pretty I'm good idea. enough that <clears throat> this institution is really screwed is up. Screwed. Do you have any um, fear at that point that you're still going to be sent to Vietnam? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's. we don't know it at that point. We, we just figured, everybody always figures at that point, we're all going. Mm. But as it turned out, because we didn't really know the war was being Vietnamized. <clears throat> when our papers come down, when we all start getting our, our first assignments to where we're going, yeah. out of the, I don't know, maybe there were 30 of us, two guys wound up being sent to Vietnam. All the rest, were we were all sent to NATO forces. Of course, this is the Cold War. So you've got the Soviet bloc, the Warsaw Pact countries with the Iron Curtain, cut across Europe with NATO on one side and the Warsaw Pact on the other. So we all get sent to various places throughout Europe, and I wind up being assigned as a journalist to the um, the Griffin, which was the newspaper. This is the other piece that I was so lucky. 
because I'm trained as a journalist, I have to be assigned to a unit that's big enough to have a newspaper. And I get assigned to the 15th Military Police Brigade headquarters in Kaiserslautern, Germany, which is like the headquarters for the military police in Europe. Wow. I'm at the headquarters. So you're at the headquarters. When, when those come in and you realize you're going to be a journalist, um, do they kind of walk you, like, does it come with some sort of a job description? Do they say, this is what you're going to be doing? Or just like, good luck. You, 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 you get, you know, you I get sent to the headquarters and, you know, I, I get, you know, I'm assigned to this uh, brigade headquarters that has a newspaper. And when I, of course, when I get there uh, and I get into the newspaper office, you know, I'm, I'm still just, you know, 76 percentile guy yeah. uh, who's just barely made it through undergraduate by the skin of his teeth. Uh, that I'm not the writer that these other guys are. I mean, some of these other guys are really good. So I'm basically just kind of given a desk job, you know, like run the office <laughs> kind of guy, you know, because my writing supplies skill, and stuff. Yeah, but actually, the 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 scary part is uh, I'm actually assigned. Um, and this is where I think my attitude toward the military starts to get reinforced. Like this is one screwed up organization. Yeah. I get assigned to be like the office assistant to a, a major Davis, and the guy is just an idiot. What is a major Davis a big deal? Well, in the military, you know, in the army, you have uh, first lieutenant, second excuse me, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, major light colonel, colonel. And so a major is, is getting up there. They have a, not, a, not as much, you know. And oh, so, he was new as Major Davis. Major Davis. Oh, yeah. speaking of 76 percentile, I'm, I'm figuring uh, out what that is. So, yeah. so either way, so you get assigned to some guy that's supposed to be a big shot, yeah. and you realize that he's an idiot. That he's an idiot. How, and how so, so here's the best example I can give you. So this is the old days of technology. So he's got his office. There's a doorway, and then there's the little office with my desk. So if you want to see Major Davis, you've got to come to me. Well, there's a squawk box. It's the old machine where if you kind of like it in the old movies, you know, if you want your secretary, you know, the guy pushes the button yeah. you know, and says, you know, Miss Smith, would you send like so-and-so in? Like an intercom. Yeah. So Major Davis, if he wants me, he just gets on the squawk box and he calls me. So now at lunch, you know, and when you're in the military, meals are a big deal. I mean, it's because you're getting away out of all the other stupid stuff, and yeah. it's fun to go to eat. So the mess hall is just right, right across the parking lot from the headquarters building. Well, all my buddies within the headquarters, every day at lunch, you know, because everybody goes to lunch at the same time, we're all going to the mess hall. Well, I can't go to lunch with everybody else in the mess hall <laughs> because Major Davis <laughs> wants me at my desk in case somebody calls him and wants to talk to him, but nobody can talk to him because he's not in his office. He's going to lunch with everybody else. So it's it's like the catch twenty two. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's catch twenty two. It's like, but Major Davis, I'm here if you need me. But you don't need me because you're not here. <laughs> yeah. So why can't I go to just because? You know, it's like, God, this guy's an idiot. So, and it's just the beginning of understanding the catch-22 of, yeah. of the military. 
You know, and just remember in the old days, if, if there was a young veteran who was going to counsel somebody before they went into the military, before you do anything, read Catch-22. Yeah. That was the whole, that was the old thing. Before you do anything with the military, you better read Catch-22. Well, I didn't read it till after I was already drafted. And you're like, oh, this thought, makes oh, a lot of sense. Man, I should have read this when they told me to. Yeah. But anyway, so that's the, really where I'm beginning to get a feel to for it out. Um, you know, it, this hierarchy system that doesn't work yeah. because you don't need, you don't need a hierarchy to m get people to do things that you want them to do. Right. You know, it's based on fear. It's based on privilege and it's not, I don't think it, it, it works personally. And positions don't necessarily quantify good leadership. Right. Like you said. So it's about 615 when do I, when? Well, we can keep going a Keep going a little yeah, bit? It's not okay. going to take us long to fix supper. Okay, so. cool. Um, so, so, when, so I know since I got the inside scoop, at when, what point do you end up doing the whole thing on the ski patrol? How does that? So when work? I'm at the head, MP headquarters, um, there's a snack bar. And uh, because this is the headquarters and there's a maintenance battalions, a lot of guys around there, so, and a lot of officers. So there's actually a snack bar, which is a neat little place. I and mean, there's a jute box and oh, you can cool. go over there almost any time. And I don't know if it was open 24-7, but you could go over there. Ham you know, it was, you, couldn't, you didn't have to eat just on the mess hall. You could go to the snack bar. Mm. So I'm over at the snack bar one night and I see this guy. And he's, you know, he's obviously in the army, but he's got hair. You know, it's kind of getting down close to his ears, you know, instead of being a burr like all the rest of us. Yeah. So I go over and like, where the hell are you coming from? You know, where have you been? And he goes, I've been on the ski patrol. I said, what the hell is the ski patrol? And he goes, oh man, it's great. He said, the ski patrol, there's two places, Birch's Garden and Garmisch Partenkirchen. It's the Arm Armed Forces Recreation Center. There's two recreation centers. So men and women in the military in Europe, if they want to go on R&R, in Europe, especially during the winter, to go skiing, there's a place in Berchtesgaden and there's a place in Garmisch-Partenkirchen. These were where the German hierarchy used to play. The wealthy, the 1% of the German population and the hierarchy of the German military went to these two towns where these ski resorts, well, to the victor go the spoils. After World War II, we take them over and we turn them into recreation centers for our GIs. Mm. So this guy says, if they, you have, they have to have ski patrol, and the mil, U.S. military provides the ski patrol. He said, if you can get your unit to re, let you go, you can go down and try out, and you can get on the ski patrol. And he said, the best thing after that is they also have the summer patrol because they have not only do they have the skiing, but there's a movie theater, there's the re ski rental, in the summer there's the bike rental. It's, these are recreation centers for GIs and their families to come. He said, so if you're really lucky, you can go from the ski patrol to the summer patrol. Ski patrol, summer patrol. So I thought, man, that's, that's the that's, job for me. That's what I want right there. So I go to Major Davis and say, hey, I just heard about this. Can, will you let me go so I can go on the ski patrol? Absolutely not. You're not going anywhere. Oh, you asshole. So I don't go anywhere. But then I get into a little bit of trouble at the MP headquarters, and I get shipped out from the MP headquarters and get sent to another headquarters in Worms, Germany, to a different newspaper. 
Are you willing to talk about it? What oh, happened? sure. Oh, yeah, it wasn't what? anything bad. Oh, what? oh, oh! I thought you got, meant like you got in trouble, like you were caught no. so smoking weed or it's, something. It's, or like, no, it, it's almost when I think back. Now you've heard you know, you know, and this may come up. When I think back of what so many young soldiers were going, the guys that were in Vietnam in 1970, what they're going through and their experiences in the military. Here I am in Germany, um, no threat to my life and limb, no death and destruction and, and all that stuff. It's, it's Europe. Well, at the MP headquarters, by then, you know, I'm this whole caste system. Because the thing with the draft is, so in, with the draft is if you want, if, you know, if you're a college grad and you wanted to avoid the draft, you could enlist and become an officer because you're a college grad. Why not become an officer? You make more money, you have prestige, or you get drafted. So now I'm in an office with a Lieutenant Dietz, nice guy, same age, two college grads, he's an officer, I'm a draftee. He's got power, he's got position, he's got a lot more money, I'm just a draftee. Well, because we're the headquarters for all the military police in Europe, they would have these conferences in our building. And it's so silly that there were two big coffee urns, right, in the building. And when we would have these conferences, these big shots from Washington would come. And so they would come to the headquarters. Well, they would take our coffee urn and they would put it outside the conference room for these uppity uppity guys and but it's our coffee I mean, we're paying for this stuff yeah. you know we don't make any money so one day i'm walking down the hallway and there's a lifer there's this sergeant nice guy you know he's probably in his 30s maybe late 30s or something like that but he's in it for the long he's haul been long he's time. been in there for a long time and we're going down the stairs and i hear him complaining and moaning about, you know, he, you know, he's upset because of the way everybody's treated when these big shots come from Washington, but he's just complaining. And I know he's not going to do anything about it because he's a lifer. Yeah. You know, he's going to cover his ass. He's not going to step out and do something. So it ticks me off. So I thought, all right, God dang it. I'm going to do something about it. So I go back to my little desk and I type up this little slip of paper that says, this is our coffee. You're drinking it at our expense. And what's a conference on leadership? Do you call this good leadership? And I, in the, in the table outside the conference room was right across the hall from my office. So I look, poke my head, I look around, nobody's there. I scoot over and I tape this right above the little nozzle. So when these guys come to pull the, fill their coffee mugs up, they're gonna see my, and they're gonna read it, right? So I tape it on there, whoosh, and I go back into my, to my desk. Well, I don't know, hour later, something time goes by, Lieutenant Dietz is over at his desk, and then this other young lieutenant, same thing, same, we're all the same age, this other lieutenant comes in, he walks over to Dietz, and he says, boy, somebody did something around here today. This is a place, somebody put some note on that coffee urn over there. It's really stirred up a mess, hornet's nest. So then... Now we have a new major, uh, Major Adams. He comes in and he, for some reason, he, I don't know why he came into our office, but he walks in and somehow Lieutenant Dietz says something about, so Major Davis, what, what, what's all this going on about the coffee thing? 
Well, Major Davis blows his, <laughs> I mean, Major Adams, he blows his top and he starts hammering poor Lieutenant Dietz, who hasn't had nothing to do with this. He was just asking a simple question. And this major is just, re you know, he's he's pissed off because he's like right down below the colonel. Yeah. You know, Colonel Baxter Magnum Bullock, the commander of the 15th Brigade headquarters. So he's unloading on poor Lieutenant Dietz, and he says something, as I recall, like, somebody in this, you know, has embarrassed the commanding officer, and if I find out who it is, and of course I'm thinking, it's not, this isn't right. Why is he reaming out poor Lieutenant Dietz? Yeah. So I said, I did it. <laughs> and he turns, and he looks at me, and he just says, I want you in my office, like in five minutes or something like that. And then he leaves. And of course, Lieutenant Dietz and the other guy, they're looking at me like, you did it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, God, you really caused this. The administrative assistant. So then, so then I know my ass is grass. So I, thought, I, so I go into Major Dave um, Adams. Adams' office. And here's one of, the, one of the neat things that happens. He's sitting behind his desk. And I'm, I'm just a spec four. You know, I'm, I'm a nobody. And I come in, and he looks at me, and he says, "You have embarrassed the commanding officer of the, you know, the military 15th Brigade headquarters, the, you know, the headquarters of all the military police in Europe. And you, if you ever do anything like this again," and he starts, you know, giving me this stuff. But the way he's saying it to me. It's almost like, good for you, buddy. You know? Interesting. Like, he has to say it to you because to it, it. it's his job, but that he's kind of... It's almost like, glad you did good it. on you. Somebody stood up, didn't, has done something about something. That's you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so then he tells me, you know, you get the hell out. So then, <laughs> it's such a weird day. So then I'm walking back to the office thinking, well, I guess that wasn't, that was bad, but not so bad. Yeah. Then I hear this, psst, psst, Rogers, Rogers. And you have to walk by the dark room to go back to my office. The door is cracked open. You know, the dark room has like that yellow or red yeah. light or whatever yeah. it was. And now behind the door is Sergeant Glasgow, another lifer in our office who was so full of him. So he was so conceited. He was such a pain in the ass guy, another lifer. He goes, come here. So he opens up the door, and he pulls me in, and he closes the door, and he goes, man, you're screwed. He said, you, you know, if you ever do anything again, they're going to bury you. He said, look, there's a job opening in TASCOM headquarters. He said, if I were you, I would apply for that job and get out of here while you can. Now, I think... I could be wrong, but Glasgow was not really trying to do me any favors. I think he was trying to maybe get me out of there so maybe something worse would happen. Oh, really? Yeah, because he wasn't my, he wasn't a fan. Yeah, yeah. But, so I go, hey, sure. So I go back in and I say to Lieutenant Dietz, so Sergeant Glasgow just told me there's an opening at Tascon headquarters for 71Q20. I mean, that's what I was. That's uh. a journalism specialist. And he goes, yeah, there is. And I said, Glasgow said I ought to apply for it. 24 hours later, I'm gone. What? I'm packed up. My duffel bag is packed, and I'm on the train heading to Worms, Germany, 
to TASCOM headquarters, which I think really pissed Glasgow off because I think he thought I was going to be sent maybe down to a different unit where I would have been, you know, slocking around in the mud when yeah. they had to do all these stupid NATO wartime exercises. Yeah, yeah. I wind up getting sent to another headquarters that was even, I mean, it was really late. <laughs> and so then when I'm there, they, the job that I'm given is to write reenlistment publicity. Well, there's no way yeah, that's the I'm going to write you do. anything to encourage any idiot to re-enlist into the military, in the army. You know, what? who in their right mind is going to re-enlist? So I'm in this office where it's obvious that my heart's not in it. Yeah. But the the sergeant who's in charge of this office, he's a pretty decent guy. I mean, he's a lifer too, but he's a he's a higher quality human being. And so then we're coming around again for the ski patrol. So you're still kind of gunning for that. Yeah. Ski patrol. I can't remember if it's the same winter or the next winter. I can't remember now. But I know now I go to this. It might have been the same winter. And I go to this sergeant and say, look, you know, the ski patrol's coming up. Can I, you know, can, can I apply? Because my other major Davis at the MP, he wouldn't let me go. Yeah. And this guy says, you know, you're really not being used around here. Let me go talk to the, the major of this headquarters. And they decide to let me go. Wow. So uh, it must have been December, maybe. Uh, I go down to take the test to see if I can get on the ski patrol. That's great. And what was the test like? Well, it was a week, so they're bringing in all these guys from all these different units, and it's a multi, this is another multi-service thing. So these are guys and gals, mm, no, there weren't any women. Yes, there were, excuse me. Oh, maybe, I can't remember now. But anyway, there are all these guys, there must have been, I don't know, 30 or 40 of us, and there's a week, there's a headquarters, um, we go through like a five days of first aid, you know, how to be on down the ski patrol. Yeah. But they're kind of starting to check us out, trying to look. And then, of course, like who we can ski and stuff like that. Well, we haven't skied yet, but they're starting to figure out who's sharp. Who, who's sharp, you know. And of course, now these guys are coming, you know, that I'm hanging out with for this week. These are guys that are a lot of them are coming in that from Montana, <laughs> yeah, Colorado, yeah. you know, Washington State. Like they've been uh, skiing for a minute. Gears. Yeah. And now this is in Garmisch Partenkirchen. So the mountain where the skiing is is the Zugspitze, the highest second highest se second highest peak of the Alps in Europe is the Zugspitze. And it's right outside the barracks. I mean, you walk outside the barracks, you look up, there's the Zugspitze. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And so now we've gone through the, the four days or whatever, four or five days of the first aid stuff. Now we're going to get up, we're going to go up, and we're going to go on the actual ski test. Well, the only pace... I have ever skied this song mountain <laughs> outside of Syracuse. And, you know, we go by it every time we're coming from your grandmother's. You know, it's like you could throw a rock and hit the top <laughs> yeah. of the hill. Well, how many times have you been skiing? Like, oh, has it been like a handful? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, 12. I don't know. Or any of these greens? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, and it, it's a ski course. So they've got the flags set up, you know, to, so you can prove. You get, it's the ski patrol. It's, it's international ski patrol. You got you to gotta be good. I don't even make it through the first two flags. And I'm flat out on my back, you know, so psh, I'm off the list. But I've been in the Army 
I've been in the military long enough to know now that if you want something to happen, you got to make it happen. Yeah. You want, you got to, you got to cover your back. That's life in general, man. It's life in general. But you learn it quick in the military because if you're not paying attention, you're going to get screwed. So I've learned by then that if you want something to happen, you got to make it happen. You got to put forces in motion. Well, the training for the first aid classes on the second floor of this headquarters. The first floor was an information office. Well, that's what I was trained as, an information mm. officer. Or not an officer, but, you know, a special information yeah. specialist. And so, and I also have learned that not everybody on the ski patrol skis, right? You've got the, the hot dogs, the really good guys, they're skiing. The other guys on the ski patrol are passing out the skates at the skating rink. Mm. They're working in the movie theater. They're doing all these They're other jobs. They're in different jobs, all ski patrol, all wearing the same sweaters, all wearing the same jeans and the same boots, <clears throat> but not everybody skis. So I realized, well, if I can get a job, so they might let me stay. So I go into the headquarters office of the information office, and here's a, another lifer, but he's a good guy. He's an Air Force sergeant, Sergeant Anderson. And I go in, and I just say, look, I'm down here on the ski patrol. I didn't make the cut, but I'm a 71 Q20. That's what you do in this office. If you give me a job, I can be assigned to the ski patrol, but you won't have to account for me because I'll be assigned to the ski patrol, but you get a warm body. You get me to work mm. in your office that you don't have to account for because free I'll be labor. on the ski patrol. Free labor. And he looks at me and he said, well, not a bad idea. Sure, why not? So when I go back up, when the army sergeant for the ski patrol starts telling us, you know, Rogers, you're out of here. You know, Kia, you're on, yeah. you're out, you're on, you're out. When he gets to me and tells me, you know, you're out of here, you didn't make it, I go up. And I don't remember what his name was. And I just said, look, I know I didn't make the cut, but I'm a 71 Q20. I was talking with Sergeant Anderson. That's what I do. He said he'd give me a job if you'd let me stay on the ski patrol. And he looks at me and he goes, all right, hold on. He leaves goes down, has a conversation with Sergeant Johnson, comes back and he says, you're on. Wow. So I'm on the ski patrol, but I don't ski. I work in an office and I write publicity <laughs> for the Armed Forces Recreation Center. I'm encouraging guys, you know, that's going out to newspapers. Yeah. I'm writing news releases. I'm doing the ski report on Armed Forces Radio because we had an Armed Forces Radio studio right there. Wow. And I'm the one who's... My buddies are hearing my voice all different places of Europe who are listening to AFRC, you know, the Armed Forces Radio, AF, uh, Armed Forces Radio. I'm the one who's doing the ski report. So, I'm, you know, I'm writing stuff for the menu. That's <laughs> I, crazy. You're I'm doing, doing all stuff. this stuff. But I'm on the ski patrol, so I get all the benefits of hanging out in this international because Garmisch Parkenkirchen there are people all over the world who are coming to ski in Garmisch Parkenkirchen and of course that's I mean it's just a wonderful place to be and that's where also I'm st I start to really uh, start spending more time by myself realizing I don't need to be around a bunch of guys to have a good time I yeah. can get a walk in the community get a bike and ride right. and start hanging out and of course the other wonderful part about the ski patrol is 
we're the we're the we're the top dogs at the International Bar and Grill. I think Mama. Yeah. The International Bar and Grill with a rock and roll band every weekend, ski patrol. When we come in, we're the ski patrol. And of course, there are young women coming in from all over the world who are coming in to ski, uh -huh. coming in to work as waitresses and stuff to, so they can ski and hang out. So now they're, they're women. That oh. were actually, yeah. So you treat it like royalty. You hey, got the hey, ski hey. patrol. You got the little yeah. bag. You just have to bring the skis in or the poles and just have to actually do <laughs> bring any Bring my skiing. type right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, since mom's home, let's say you will wrap part one um, for now. Plus, I think that's a good length. And we'll, we'll take this thing in chapters. All right. That works? Sounds good. Pop. Appreciate Thanks. you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to part one yeah. of the Rick Rogers story. Yeah. And Thank you, King. We'll have, we'll have part two on the way soon. All right. Thanks. Peace. Thank you so much again for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate you. If you like the episode, please subscribe and rate. Leave a rating. Leave a comment. Tell me what you think. I'm trying to make this thing better. All right. See you next week. Peace.